0: This sermon was recorded at Highway San Jose in San Jose, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Tonight we're continuing our, uh, our journey through the book of Galatians. As we round out chapter 4 tonight, uh, we come again to this thesis that Paul has had uh, over and over again in the book that the gospel is for everyone, uh, not just the Jewish people, And he reminds us again of the ways in which we categorize each other and and divide from each other. And he says those no longer longer apply. Now that Christ has come and the good news is available to everyone. So tonight, in this section, Paul gets a little bit creative. And um, he tells his readers that basically, I'm gonna take an Old Testament story and I'm gonna create an allegory around it. I'm gonna create an allegory of it that applies to your present context. Now I was an English major in my undergraduate years and so this, the fact that he's doing this fills me with great joy. You know, English majors love allegory and interpretation and authorial intent and things like that and, and Paul kind of plays with those concepts here in this, in this section. And he does it to get the attention of his audience, his Galatian audience. So what is he doing? He, he goes back again to the Abraham story and this time he zooms in on Abraham's children and the natural and supernatural events surrounding their birth stories. And this idea of natural and supernatural is important and he'll go on to describe these two worlds and the children of Abraham in these terms, or as he calls them, on one hand, the children of the flesh or the children of slavery, and on the other hand, the children of promise. So those are the two things kind of at play in this section. So before we look at Paul's version of the story in Galatians, um, Here's how the story plays out in Genesis and how the story would have been known to his audience. So we have Abraham and Sarah, unable to have children. And, of course, in in antiquity, that was the ultimate doom, right? Not being able to have children, not being able to continue the family line. So Sarah suggests that Abram get together with Hagar, one of her slave girls, so that they can bear children. Now, this is a weird situation, but it was common in, in that day to if you couldn't have children, to, to have them by means of an attendant or means of a slave in the household. So there's implications in that that we don't have time to get into, but for now, let's just say that that was fairly normal practice and fairly accepted, actually, as strange as it sounds. But if we back up a little bit, we see that God has already promised Abraham descendants. And Abraham says, well, that's great, but we can't have children, so our descendants, our descendants are going to be slaves. They're going to be They're going to be the heirs of our slaves. And God says, no, it actually won't be like that. It'll be your own flesh and blood. It'll be your own issue, as he says. And so God promises that this supernatural event will befall this family that's in need and and unable to have children. So it's after that promise that God delivers that Abraham takes up with Hagar, kind of takes matters into his own hands, as it were, even though God has specifically said that children are in their future. So Hagar the slave girl gives birth to Ishmael and sure enough, more than a decade later, God's promise is fulfilled and Sarah, who's about 100 years old at this time, gives birth to Isaac. God decides to actually bless both of the offspring, both the line of Ishmael and Isaac, and he says, I'm gonna make your your offspring bounteous and I'm gonna make nations out of you and so forth. But it's through Isaac, as we know that God establishes his his specific covenant and and he begins his unique relationship with the Jewish people. And so Paul's audience um, would have known this story. If we we go fast forward to Galatians, his audience would have been well familiar with this story. And uh, just to take a step back, his audience in Galatia is wide. It's, it's, It's all kinds of people, but specifically he's talking here to those who believe that To be followers of Christ meant holding on to Jewish aspects of the law and certain ideas of Jewishness. And his audience would have known the story of Abraham and his offspring and would have certainly known that the descendants of Isaac are the chosen people and that that line stretched all the way to them. Well, in this section, Paul says, not so fast. So let's look at what he does say here in Galatians 4.21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who, were, who, who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband." Now you, brothers and sisters, are like Isaac, children of promise. At that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So Paul sort of lays down a big switcheroo here. And what he does is this, he takes takes the delivery of the law on Mount Sinai and he moves it out of its traditional location in the Jewish narrative and he aligns it with Hagar and Ishmael and thus slavery. This is a bold move. He's, He's saying living like that and thinking in that way is the equivalent of slavery this story that's at the heart of Jewish identity, Paul redefines as saying, now that Christ has come, everything's changed. Everything's redrawn, everything's different, and the law is irrelevant, which is his theme here in the book of Galatians. And he says, actually, I'm gonna move the Mount Sinai event over into the slavery column, because now that Christ has come, living that way is slavery. And in an interesting way, he's careful to say, and you may have picked up on this in in the passage, he says, these things, are being taken figuratively. And I think he does this because he knows that this redefinition of the story is extremely radical. And he knows that the meaning he's assigning to the story now was not the meaning the story had in the Old Testament. And you know, I think, I think that's worth thinking about a little bit. Um, as Paul lays out this allegory, he's, he's doing a very delicate, very tenuous thing with scripture, and and, and he's doing he's doing kind of an interesting thing with the Old Testament in, in the way he reinterprets it. You know, you may have been here when uh, Dr. John Walton was here earlier in the year. He's an Old Testament scholar from, from Wheaton. And he, uh, one of the things he always says is that scripture is written for us, but not to us. And by that, he, he means that, you know, we have to understand what the ancient context is for the writing before we ascribe our context to it so that the two interpretations kind of hang in balance with one another. Uh, And that's what we do. That's sort of the general practice of studying scripture in our day, right? But Paul is saying something very interesting. He's saying, I know what the context of the Abraham story is. I know how it's been read and it's been interpreted for hundreds of years. But I'm gonna stretch it and I'm gonna reinterpret it to make my point here because the point I'm trying to make is so crucial that the coming of Christ Means a grace based faith and it means this reinterpretation of everything, even ancient narratives that we've been accustomed to. Um, So, Paul represents this sort of elasticity to to Scripture. And, and, you know, again, to this former English major, that's very exciting to me that, that, that he's doing that. And, you know, but granted, you know, Paul is Paul, Paul is the Apostle Paul. So, before any of us kind of go back to the Bible and sort of take out the yellow pen, you know, we should we should check ourselves, obviously, but I think the power in this, in this activity is very interesting, and, and the power of scripture to flex and move over, over millennia is very, is very interesting, and it's kind of proof of, of why it endures and why it, it speaks to us, you know, day after day and week after week, and um, I, thought, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, so we have children of the flesh, or children of slavery on one side, and we have the children of the promise, on the other side, and by now I'm sure that the answer is very plain as to which of those groups we want to be in, right? We are not children of slavery, we are children of promise, or we're meant to be children of promise. In other words, if we believe in Christ and we believe that his death and his resurrection truly saves us and ushers us into our true selves, and that his life and his teaching represent our ideal, then we're part of a tradition that stretches all the way back to Abraham, and, and in that story, there's this idea that our lineage is kind of supernatural, that, that our faith is based on supernatural events and based on that promise that he keeps going back to. So we believe in that promise of God and we wait expectantly for those promises to unfold. We don't turn to humanity. We don't turn to slavery, to our own initiatives to try to usher in God's plans. We trust and we believe that God will be God and he will be God in our lives and his plan will be seen in us. So again, Paul is back to this kind of ethereal nature of what belief in Christ looks like, and it's just that, philosophically, it's, it's belief. It's not about laws and the doing of things and the acting a certain way and kind of this robotic progression that was, that was in vogue back in that time. It's about belief and about that promise that God is for us. Um, you know toward the end of galatians and we're, we're getting there we're inching toward there paul's going to lay out what he calls the fruit of the spirit and that's kind of the uh I like to think of it as the as what a child of promise looks like when when their life is kind of lived out the things that pour out of somebody who has aligned themselves with christ and he'll also talk about what the opposite looks like but for now he's kind of talking about what's what's underneath all that what's behind all that and what produces the fruit of the spirit so when we look at this section in Galatians and we try, to, we try to interpret it for our own context here in Silicon Valley in 2016, um, the thing that probably pops to mind and is probably the easiest landing spot is, is legalism, right? And I would define legalism as, you know, this, this idea that certain outward actions and certain practices are the defining markers of a, of a moral life or of a Christian life life, of Christian living, if you will, but I don't think, I don't necessarily think that's what we struggle with here in Silicon Valley, right? We're living in the age of T and A, tolerance and acceptance. So when we live in the age of tolerance and acceptance, you know, we begin to lose the ability to differentiate ourselves from other people, and that's actually good. That's actually the point of tolerance and acceptance, right? And it's actually a very Christ-like way to move through the world and to, and to regard people and to regard the world itself. But for the Christ follower, that can be, a, that can be good or bad. And that's, I, know, I realize this is kind of another discussion altogether, but in our community in Silicon Valley, I don't think legalism and, and religiousness are the things that we, that we struggle with. You know, we struggle with probably the opposite thing that we don't differentiate ourselves enough. And I don't mean differentiate by way of legalism and, and sort of this moral policing that the church is, is now famous for, you know. It's not that, it's, it's actually living free lives, living lives that are free from sort of the noise and the nonsense of our, of our world, you know. Um, it's not policing lifestyle choices and so forth, and, but it's, it's the idea that do we, do we look like everybody else, do we act like everybody else, or do we live free lives? Do we live as children of the promise? So what does a life like that look like? What does a life that's set free to live free look like? You know, last week we, uh, we participated in some hands-on installations here uh, at Highway, across all of our campuses, actually, and we, and we focused on our identity, right? and you know how do we view ourselves, how does, how does the world view us, how does God view us, uh, I think that's kind of in play, at play here in this section too, there was an activity that asked us to look into a mirror and regard ourselves, you know, the way we think we look and the way we think we are, and then, and then regard yourself as God sees you, and that was very powerful for a lot of people across our community, sort of trying to break free from the laws of our world and focus on who we are in Christ, how God views us. I think that challenge kind of continues here this week. Are we gonna live as children of the flesh, children of slavery, according to outdated, outmoded instructions, or as Paul called them last week, those weak and miserable forces? Or are we gonna live free as children of the promise? So what does it look like to live as children of promise? Well, this week, I found a great blog post, and maybe some of you saw this, but it was on a blog called The Ugly Volvo. And uh, I can relate to that because we own an ugly Volvo. It's actually not ugly. It's very, very pretty. But The Ugly Volvo is, is basically a blog about parenting and, and so forth, and kind of a lifestyle blog by Raquel DePeace. And she does, she does this kind of meditation on the book Go, Dog, Go. You guys remember this book? Here we have a picture of the cover. Very famous book. And Go Dog Go, like, like a lot of the early Dr. Seuss readers, was designed to get children to kind of understand basic concepts of, of language and things. And, and Go Dog Go, it's all about like, you know, above and under and, and plural groups. There's a lot of dogs over here. There's some dogs over here, you know, um, conjunctions and things like that. And having conversations, do you like this? No, I don't like it. So she goes through this... Um, this unpacking of go, dog, go. And there's a story within the book, it's really the only story in the book, of two dogs that sort of meet each other repeatedly, and there's a, there's a red dog and a yellow dog, and here they are right here, and the, and, the, and the red dog, she looks a little purple here, but she's actually red, she keeps going up to the yellow dog with different hats and saying, do you like my hat? And throughout the book he says, I do not. And, and he says, she says goodbye, goodbye. It's very good-natured, they're very, they're very cordial. But this keeps happening over and over again. They, they encounter one another, do you like my hat? No, I do not. And they, well, all right, see you later, you know. Another, another scene, they're skiing at the top of a hill. She has a nice big ski hat on, do you like my hat? I do not like that hat, again, very honest. And they part ways and ski back down the hill. Toward the end of the book, she puts on this hat. So she's really brought out everything, you know, but the kitchen sink, stuck it on this hat, and she says, hello again, and now, do you like my hat? And and now, he says, I do, what a hat, I like it. I like that party hat. And in the last page of the book, they get in this little red car and they sort of speed off and kind of live happily ever after, I guess, you know. So the the blog basically took a feminist reading of this and was like, talking to the, the red dog saying like, hey girlfriend, you don't need to care about what he thinks. Like you're hip, you've got hats, you know, just forget about what he thinks and live your life, you know. You don't need a man to identify, you know. She's kind of kind of this tongue in cheek feminist reading of Go, Dog, Go which was very, which I thought was very, very funny. She says this, kind of speaking for the red dog. I'm a moderately well drawn ketchup colored poodle and my storyline is the closest thing this book has to a plot. I'm the only thing pulling the narrative along. I'm well-groomed, I enjoy skiing, and have enough disposable income to amass a comfortable hat, wardrobe." So when I read this, I couldn't help but think of Galatians, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> because, because how often do we do that, right? We, we try on things you know, in our fast-paced, information-packed life in Silicon Valley, you know. It's a lot like the life for that ketchup-colored dog. You know, we try things on. We try on. Thanks to social media, we try on personas and, and different lives. Even and it's like, hey, how do you like me now? You know, and, and and we we do things with our careers. You know, and we, and we try these things on, and we go to the world, and we go, how, do, how does it look? How do you like my hat? And the world kind of goes, yeah. You know, and then we go away, and we try we try other things on, and we try to drum stuff up and we change our careers and we change our parenting styles or whatever, you know, and we obsess about things and, and, and whatever. And that's that's slavery, right? That's living as a child of slavery. Being bound up in a value system that someone has laid out for you that doesn't apply to you, right? That's life as a child of the flesh, a life removed from the promise, from that supernatural belief uh, that God is with you, and Christ is at the center of your life. That's true freedom. That's being set free to live free. So we have a few moments left, and uh, we're going kind to of reflect on this as the band comes back up. We like to take time and just offer a little bit of space here as we begin the week together to just to just reflect on this and sing together. And uh, so, as we do that, let's ask ourselves: you know. What does life as a child of the promise look like? You know? What's the antidote of all that running around and all that kind of the lifestyle of the red dog, if you were? Um, it may be that we need to take a bit of a Sabbath from those identity markers that the world is kind of laying out for us. You know, It may be that we need to step away from social media. Maybe, maybe we need to step away for a season from that and from kind of, kind of the stress that that brings. Or maybe we need to step away from you know, how, how we obsess about our parenting or our careers or how we worry about the future and we worry about finances and things. Just, just take a step back from that stuff and realize that we're children of promise and we're set free and God's in control. So as we sing, here's a few things to meditate on that just sort of compare the two, the two worlds, the The child of slavery and the child of promise. A child of slavery scrambles to find earthly solutions. A child of promise is patient and has faith that God will answer. A child of slavery is easily distracted and worried that God is not in control. But a child of promise is constant and consistent and sure of God's presence, even through trauma. And finally, A child of slavery lets the systems of the world prescribe the meaning of fulfillment. But a child of promise knows that fulfillment comes in the love of Christ. So let's ask the spirit of God to fall afresh on us and remind us who we are and remind us that we're children of of the promise and that his grace extends to us all.